So in last week, last week's lesson, we looked at the first half of chapter 9 of Esther, and we dealt with what I consider to be a, a tough passage. There are those, those tough passages in the Bible, and this kind of highlights the, the importance of expository preaching, or preaching through a series of books and not skipping over parts that make us uncomfortable. There's, there's lots of parts of the Bible that, that make me uncomfortable, but God has given us every jot and tittle for our edification and instruction, so it's important that we read and study all the parts of the Bible. But last week was all about violence. Uh, we tackled some issues about especially Esther seeming particularly ruthless and her uh, asking for an extension on the killing in the capital city. Uh, we covered... Um, Lots of other things. Uh, Specifically, one of the points that I made was uh, it makes me uncomfortable that we don't have any sort of moral commentary on the actions of Esther and Mordecai in this chapter, especially those of Esther. Uh, And in the rest of the book, we don't have any sort of moral commentary whatsoever. The author just presents the events as they happened and and does not give us anything else. Um, We don't have anything from God. We don't have anything from the author. We don't know exactly you know, the why they did these things or their, the judgment upon them for them. And trying to drew out the point that that makes me thankful for the rest of the Bible and where we do have those sort of moral commentaries. We have the standard set for um, how we are to live our lives as human beings in relation to both God and other human beings. And then... I made the point that what our our society has devolved into today in its current sludge is because everyone possesses, quote, their own truth without any anchor to either reality or any sort of transcendent truth. And so as I was doing my yearly Bible read through this week, I was I was struck how how relevant my reading was. I'm going to elaborate on this point just a little bit more before we go to today's material. And so uh, I just finished last week what I consider to be one of the darkest books of the Bible, Judges. So there there are many dark books and dark periods in Israel's history. You could just look at our our current study through Ezekiel that Hal's doing, and Ezekiel's a very dark book, especially in the you know the first thirty chapters. Um, but Judges Judges is very very dark too. The Israelites are constantly turning against God as soon as Joshua dies. They sin and repent, sin and repent. And God, throughout this period, continues to raise up judges to deliver Israel from their sins. And even the judges, for the most part, or at least the ones that we have details on, are usually laden with problems themselves. Even the good ones, you know, Gideon and Samson and these, they have tons of problems. And after 16 chapters and 12 judges, the last four chapters of the book are just some of the worst narratives in all of the Bible. Chapter 17, we have a man named Micah who makes a silver idol for himself and then convinces a Levite to serve as a personal priest for this worthless God. Then later, members of the tribe of Dan steal this idol and convince the Levite to be their illegitimate priest to go back with them into their country. They set up an actual temple for the idol and then a grandson of Moses, nonetheless, becomes a high priest for the wicked cult. And in the next chapter, another Levite marries a concubine, and after making a trip to the city of Gibeah, which is in the land of Benjamin, the men of Gibeah act exactly, exactly like the men of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
And then after being unable to commit unspeakable acts against the Levite himself, they rape and murder his wife. The Levite then cuts her up into 12 pieces and sends her throughout the land of Israel. Very dark book. And this results in a civil war in which every tribe comes to fight against Benjamin, and Benjamin is almost completely wiped out. After this, the men of Benjamin are left without wives, so the rest of Israel agrees to let them steal women and ambushes from the woods. So these are a horrible four chapters, horrible close to one of the darkest books in the Bible. And why is this? These chapters, chapters 17 through 21 of Judges, are bookended by the same verses. In verse 17, uh, chapter 17, verse 6, and then in chapter 21, verse 25, it says the same thing. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Some of the most terrifying words in all of Scripture, and that is exactly where our society is right now. Everyone does what is right in their own eyes. No moral standards, this is what you get. And this is an introduction to what John's going to be talking about in Sunday school starting in two weeks, the law. So, now that we've belabored that point again for another week, let's go back to Esther. After eight and a half chapters and over 5,000 words, the author is finally going to get to his reason for writing the book. This kind of uh, stands in opposition to a lot of the books of the Bible when the author, especially Paul, you know, he comes out of the door with why he's writing the book in most cases. The author of Esther puts it at the end. By the time the book was written, the celebration of Purim or Purim was a well-established celebration of the Jewish people all throughout the world or all throughout the empire at least. And this book was written specifically to give the history and the why of the celebration. And this celebration is still exorbitantly celebrated today. And so why is this important for Christians? Well, the celebra- specific celebration itself doesn't really have much relevance to us. But remembering that God protects his people and that he is sovereign and that his good providence is meant for our good, even when we can't see it, makes the book incredibly relevant to us today. So let's read on and thank God that our Messiah was indeed able to be born. So today we're going to finish the book starting at Esther 9, chapter 9, verse 20, and reading through the end of chapter 10. So Esther 9, verse 20. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month Adar, and also the fifteenth day of the same year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them, For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast poor, or pure, that is, lots, to crush and destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they call these days Purim, after the name Pure. Therefore, because of all, therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, 
and of what they had faced in this matter and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation and every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihel, and Mordecai the Jew gave full written authority confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus in words of peace and truth that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them. And as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting, the command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim and it was recorded in writing. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea and all the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him. Are they not written in the books, book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. <clears throat> so here we have the description of the why the Jews celebrate, celebrate Purim. Pur is the Hebrew transliteration of the Persian word for lot. Purim is the Hebrewized plural of the word pure. This is, reminds Jewish, the Jewish people that Haman had intended to destroy them and had cast lots to determine the date of the slaughter. A special emphasis is placed on the fact that all the Jews are to tell the story to their offspring forever. They are, in fact, commanded by Esther throughout the entire kingdom to do this. And at the end of the story, Esther is emphatically called Queen Esther. She has risen triumphantly to a royal position and has complete command of the kingdom. The extent and power of Xerxes' kingdom is again announced, and the book closes with high praise for Mordecai. He is great in the kingdom politically, and he is considered great among his people, the Jews. Now, a little bit about Purim itself. Purim is the only Jewish festival in the Bible described outside of the Pentateuch, uh, adding to the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Tabernacles, Passover, and the Feast of Weeks we have the prescribed Jewish religious festivals. Also included in our present day is Hanukkah, which is described in the apocryphal book of Maccabees. Uh, Purim itself, though, is still a large and extravagant celebration today. It's celebrated either on Adar 14 or Adar 15 in the Hebrew calendar, which is usually sometime in March um, in our calendar, usually. And think of it as kind of this strange mixture of, of Halloween and, and Mardi Gras, if we were to set it in our kind of cultural context. As its stated purpose, it's meant to celebrate the victory of the Jews over those who wish to do them harm. But today it's mostly uh, a big, giant, similar to Mardi Gras, drunken festival. Everyone dresses in elaborate costumes. Uh, they cheer at the names of Mordecai and Esther and boo and hiss at the name of Haman. And then this, this is very peculiar. This is the official rabbinical position. Now, this is the command of the rabbis, keep in mind. You must drink until you are so drunk that you can't tell the difference between the phrases, cursed be Haman and blessed to be Mordecai. 
So very strange to say the least. Um, as also a weird side note, Purim is celebrated on Adar 14 in all cities that were not walled at the time of the conquest of Canaan by Joshua, and Adar 15 in all of the cities that were walled. So it's just a one-day celebration, but for some reason, like in Jericho, um, I can't think of any other walled cities in the time of Joshua, the time of Joshua, but in all the cities that were walled, Jericho, Jerusalem, and some others, it's celebrated a day later than all the cities that weren't walled. I looked up the reason for it, and it's a strange roundabout reason why they do that. Uh, not worth going into here. Um, actually, so Sarah, if y'all don't know, Sarah actually spent a semester studying in Israel. It wasn't during the time that Purim was going on, right? It was in the fall. So, uh, but she said they did talk about it some, some then because they were talking about Halloween a little bit. And they said, no, they wouldn't celebrate that here. It's all it's about Purim. Um, so she might have some further insights that I don't have about the actual celebration itself. But th- this holiday, this particular Jewish holiday, is difficult for Christians to grasp, uh, especially because all of the old, other Old Testament holidays, with the exception of, of Hanukkah, of course, uh, they have direct par- parallels to the accounts of the four Gospels and Acts in the New Testament. I won't go into all those parallels, but for, for most of us, we can, we can see the obvious ones with the, you know, the Day of Atonement and then Passover. Uh, then we, can, we could talk about the Feast of Tabernacles and the Feast of Weeks as well, but I'm not going to go into that today. The point being is that all those described in the Pentateuch have a direct relation to things that Jesus accomplished in the New Testament. Pure, not so much. So this kind of adds more to what we've been saying for the past few weeks. Esther is kind of a tough book for Christians. Uh, Nevertheless, God has given us all the books for our instruction and edification. And as we have seen in previous weeks, there are some some real jewels here. And today, as we close, we're going to look at, at three more specific applications that I want to draw out from our text today. The first one is the importance of working together for advancing the kingdom of God. So there is apparently somewhat of a debate between commentators of the book of Esther who the main character or the hero of the story is. Some argue that the main character is Esther. Some argue that it's Mordecai. I say that this is a silly, frivolous, and ridiculous waste of breath to be arguing over. Uh, Esther and Mordecai are both integral to the story. They're both the heroes of the story. Without either, the story fails to unfold and God's people are likely to be destroyed. Without Mordecai, Esther would likely have never ascended the throne. Xerxes might have been assassinated, and there would have been no one to write the counter decree. Without Esther, no one who would have been seen as high enough in the king's good favor to approach the throne and live. Haman would likely still be alive without Esther. And she's the one who, in the first place, suggested Mordecai take Haman's place. These two complement each other so very well. They are working together for the benefit of God's people. The penultimate paragraph in the book focuses on Esther's authority, and then the final paragraph focuses on the honor of Mordecai and how he is revered among God's people. So the author gives them both equal treatment here. He closes with Mordecai, but immediately preceding that, he describes how Esther commands the entire kingdom. So they are working together for the advance of the kingdom and for the edification of God's people. And so even while recognizing the providence and the sovereignty of God... We also acknowledge that God has required his people to work to advance the kingdom, 
to build up the body by working together for the common good of God's people. God endows the church with different gifts, talents, and abilities, and places its members in various geographical locations and various positions, both high and low, all for the twofold purposes of glorifying himself and building up the brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is one of the express purposes of the New Testament church. Let's look at an explicit passage about this in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 16. So in Ephesians 4, Paul says, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended up, when he ascended on high, he led a host of, of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So we can debate until we're blue in the face with the charismatics as to whether the miraculous gifts have ceased. They have, by the way. But Paul's main point in this passage is that no matter what spiritual gift God has bestowed upon you, it's to be used for the exclusive purpose of serving the church, starting with the local church. And look at Paul's even more lengthy treatment of spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians. Paul spends three whole chapters talking to the church at Corinth about spiritual gifts and using them with love. And then he finishes, he starts and finishes his exposition in this way. So he starts in 1 Corinthians 12, starts his, his exposition this on the spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 4. I'm not going to read all three chapters by the way. There, there are therefore, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And then skip, uh, skip down to verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So that's how he starts off the exposition. He ends it in chapter 14, verse 26. It's not the direct ending, but this is at the end. Chapter 14, verse 26. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. So if you are in Christ, if you have the Holy Spirit, God has given you a gift for serving the church, starting with the local church. Figure out what it is and use it. 
I'll close this point by appealing to Spurgeon. So Spurgeon, he has one sole entry from the book of Esther in his great little devotional book, Morning and Evening. And this is what he writes. It is specifically on the very last verse in the book of Esther, chapter 10, verse 3. And the entry for November 28th, November 28th, the evening entry for November 28th. This is what Spurgeon says. November 28th, evening, seeking the wealth of his people, Esther 10.3. Mordecai was a true patriot, and therefore being exalted to the highest position under Ahasuerus, he used his eminence to promote the prosperity of Israel. In this, he was a type of Jesus, who upon his throne of glory seeks not his own, but spends his power for his people. It, it were well if every Christian would be a Mordecai to the church, striving according to his ability for its prosperity. Some are placed in stations of affluence and influence. Let them honor their Lord in the high places of the earth and testify for Jesus before great men. Others have what is far better, namely close fellowship with the King of Kings. Let them be sure to plead daily for the weak of God's people, the doubting, the tempted, and the comfortless. It will redound to their honor if they make much intercession for those who are in darkness and dare not draw nigh to the mercy seat. Instructed believers may serve their master greatly if they lay out their talents for the general good and impart their wealth of heavenly learning to others by teaching them the things of God. The very least in our Israel may at least seek the welfare of his people, and his desire, if he can give no more, shall be acceptable. It is at once the most Christ-like and the most happy course for a believer to cease from living to himself. He who blesses others cannot fail to be blessed himself. On the other hand, to seek your own personal greatness is a wicked and unhappy plan of life. Its way will be grievous and its end will be fatal. Here is the place to ask thee, my friend, whether thou art the best of, to the best of thy power, seeking the wealth of the church in thy neighborhood. I trust thou art not doing it mischief by bitterness and scandal, nor weakening it by thy neglect. Friend, unite with the Lord's poor, bear their cross, do them all the good thou canst, and thou shalt not miss thy reward. So very true. The gifts are meant for building up the church, especially as Spurgeon points out, the church in thy neighborhood. Um, Esther and Mordecai were placed in positions of high honor, placed in positions high in government, and they sought the welfare of their people. Each one of us should do the same. And so for the next point, the next point I want to move on to from this chapter that I was, was drawn out of is the importance of telling the works of the Lord to new generations. So back in Esther chapter 9, verses 27, 28, and 31, we are told this. In verse 27, and 28, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and the time appointed every year, and the, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. And then skip down to verse 31 that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed season as, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fast and their lamenting. The command here is explicit from Esther. 
One of the purposes of this festival was to teach the children how the Jews had been saved from their enemies. This highlights the importance of teaching our kids the things of God. There is example after example of righteous saints in the Old Testament who bore wicked children. Even after the period of the patriarchs, we have Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu. We have the worthless sons of Eli. And even after Samuel, seeing how awful the worthless sons of Eli were, his own sons were wicked. David bore Absalom and almost ran the kingdom into the ground trying to reconcile with him. Solomon bore Rehoboam, who started the decline of the kingdom. And these are just just a handful of examples, just off the top of my head. Time and time again, we see that the church is one generation away, one generation away from completely abandoning the God of their fathers. And that terrifies me. It's an incredibly somber thought to think that my children could bring, bring shame upon the name of Christ. And this should emphasize to us the importance of praying for our individual children and the next generation as a whole. We should tell them the great things of God and remind them often. So let's look at a few Old Testament examples of this and then commands to follow. In Exodus chapter 12, we have the initiation of another of the great Jewish feast days, Passover. So in Exodus chapter 12, we get the question, so why, why should we celebrate Passover? Or why should the Jews celebrate Passover? Then in verse, verses 24 to 27, it says this, You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. And then a few pages over in Exodus 13. Children of the following generations are going to ask, why do we have to eat this unleavened bread? So in Exodus 13, verse 8, it says this, You shall tell your son on that day, it's because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And still a few verses over in chapter 13, Then when you enter the land of Canaan, you're going to devote the firstborn of everything to the Lord. And then in verse 14, it says, And when... In time to come, your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. The Israelites were to constantly remind their children the great works of the Lord. Then in Psalm 78, Psalm 78, the first seven verses of the psalm, a psalm of Asaph, we get this. A song complete specifically about this in the first seven verses. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from old. Things we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from, our, we will not hide them from their children, but tell them to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel when he commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God but keep his commandments. A song, a song about the importance 
of teaching the coming generation about the great works of God. We have a very lofty responsibility to do this, brothers and sisters, for Christianity is not dominant in our culture at all. And then the great Shema. You knew I was going here. Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6, verses 1 through 9. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them. Remember, this is Moses speaking right now, whenever they're about to enter the land of Canaan. That you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's sons, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life and all, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them that it may go well with you and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And in these words I command, and in these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise all the time. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And then down in verse 20, Moses again says, when your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that The Lord your God has commanded you. Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. The Israelites were to constantly remind their children who God is and why it's important to worship him. And this is not just in the Old Testament. Paul over in Titus 2 is talking to the New Testament church, believers in the New Testament church. So Titus 2 You know, I like to go to a lot of different scripture passages. Titus 2, verses 1 through 8. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women... To love their husbands and children, to be love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that the opponent, the opponent so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. We are to teach younger generations how to walk a Christian walk. Not just our own children, but all the younger generations. We are to teach the younger men and women, the the mature believers are to teach the younger believers how to walk a Christian walk, how to be respectable, how to be a good moral Christian and obey the commands of the Lord, bringing honor to him and honor to the church. And then specifically about our own children in Acts chapter 2, in Acts chapter 2, a, a touchy passage for some reformed people. But Acts chapter 2, Peter has a great convicting sermon, one of the greatest sermons in all of Scripture. 
We can all agree upon the crowd. After his sermon, the crowd is, is begging for instructions on what to do next. And then Peter responds in verses 38 and 39. I'll start back up in 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who is far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So a bit of a side note about infant baptism here. I had to have to go there. Uh, our Presbyterian and Pedo-Baptist brothers and sisters like to point to verse 39 and say, the promise is for you and your children. And then they like to stop there. Well, they read the rest of the verse. So for whom, from whom the Lord our God calls himself, and then down in verse 41, so those who received his word were baptized. So... Uh, just as kind of a side note there, we would uh, not agree that our children are in the covenant until they uh, repent and believe. But we cannot deny that children born into Christian families enjoy spiritual privileges that those born outside of Christian families do not. So thank, your children should thank the Lord that they were born into Christian families. And the day that they come to repent and believe, uh, you know, pray to God that that happens soon rather than later, that they will indeed see how blessed that they were to be born into Christian families. And so, brothers and sisters, bless your children. Bless them by teaching them the works of the Lord and showing them what God has done for you in both your words and in your actions. And in this way, uh, ritual is, is important. We have established patterns. We are reminded of the things that are truly important in our lives when we have these patterns. We have, just as a very trivial couple of examples, we have a patterns of meals and a patterns of lying down to rest. Why? Because food and sleep are necessary for survival. They are important. Eating and sleeping are rituals. A trivial example, yes, but it illustrates the point. Rituals are important. Celebrating Christmas and Easter are rituals. Sure, not explicitly commanded nor necessarily beneficial. Don't get me wrong, I may be stepping on some toes here. But uh, they can be beneficial, Christmas and Easter, but we are not compelled by God to celebrate them. Now, I personally don't have any strong convictions against celebrating Christmas or Easter, uh, but try telling almost anyone who claims to be a Christian that any Sunday, any particular Lord's Day, is orders of magnitude more important than Christmas. I realize how tough that may be to hear. But if you try to tell that to anyone that claims to be a Christian, you will most likely get a death glare. But I would affirm that any Sunday, this particular Sunday, is more important than Christmas. But I digress. Christmas and Easter can be useful tools for teaching your children, but family worship, praying with your children, taking them to Sunday school, and walking a Christian walk in your day-to-day life is vastly, vastly more important than holidays that God has not sanctioned. And the very best thing to bind a child's heart to Christ is to have him or her in the house of God every single Lord's Day, seeing adults exalting Christ in true worship. So, brothers and sisters, let's show our kids this today and show that to them every Sunday. And then the last point. While Satan wishes to crush the church, our seed of Adam will indeed crush him. In verse 24 of chapter 9 in Esther, we're introduced 
to a new word in the Hebrew and in the English. So in verse 24 of chapter 9, it says, we have a, we have a new descriptor of Haman's edict here. Back in the, the previous chapters, the descriptor of the edict, uh, the stated words in English were to kill, destroy, and annihilate the Jews. In the description here, we have a new word rendered crush in English. Uh, for Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, enemy of the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them. Cast pure to crush and destroy them. Uh, the other two words, destroy, are very similar to the previous edict, but crush is new. Um, I was hoping to make some sort of pleasant Hebrew connection to another place in Scripture here, but um, I'll make an English connection instead. This verse reminds me of the Proto-Evangelium in Genesis 3. God is pronouncing a curse on the serpent and says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's the ESV translation. The ESV renders Christ's action against Satan as a bruising. Other translations say, he shall crush your head. Like God, Satan is explicitly absent from the book of Esther. But make no mistake about it. Haman was of his father, the devil, and Satan was rooting for Haman's plan to succeed. Satan was on the verge of victory by eliminating the seed of David. But he had to watch as the Messiah comes less than 500 years later. He tried to destroy the babe in the manger by issuing another edict of death through an earthly governor. But he had to watch as the boy grew. He tried to destroy the man's integrity and righteousness by offering him the kingdoms of the world. But he had to watch as God's word answered him with God's word. He tried to destroy the man by bringing worthless men to accuse the son of man and son of God. But he had to watch the father crush the only one who never sinned for the sake of sinners who did not deserve it. He thought that he was victorious for three days, but he had to watch from his bruised face as the man emerged from the tomb. He still seeks to accuse the brethren today. He still seeks to destroy the church right now. But Christ, the great serpent crusher, the great divine warrior, has equipped the saints for battle and will lead his people to victory. And we look forward to that great day when Christ will cast the dragon, that ancient serpent, Satan, the devil, into the lake of fire where he will no longer torment the church because our Messiah is a conqueror. So let us go and worship this Christ today.